Okay, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24. Before we read the verse, I want to open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together with your flock to pray with for one another, to, to praise you and worship you, to fellowship, to open up the Word of God and to be taught. And Lord, we pray that you'd meet us and may your flock be cared for and fed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, I got some interesting emails this week and I forgot to print one that I wanted to share. I did get the other one printed. One email I got this week was from England and it was a lady in England was thanking us for this Sunday school class. And one of the things that she said was she really likes that the, the hunger and willingness to learn and study that she senses from the people just from the questions and statements that they ask. And so she loves participating in our Sunday school class in England. So I wanted to tell you about that. And that's, that's part of the reason, um, we got a few front row chairs over here. That's part of the reason we go to the effort to put this on tape is because it goes all around the world. And um, I've got one, let's see, I got what? One, two, three, four, four chairs here, two there. Padded ones, there's one, there's two. <laughs> She's got her back pillow on there. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, um, I have a prayer request here. I sent it to the elders, and they were quite touched by it. And I, I sent the guy a copy of my book. But, but listen to this um, email from Denmark that came this week. Um, my family and me are alone with our faith. All of the churches we know have all gone mad. <laughs> they, they either do not take the word very seriously or they have been destroyed by the Rick Warren's book. We have been without a church for ten years now and have only gotten fellowship with a few Lutherans. When I talk with members of these Rick Warren churches and they start listening, their leaders tell them to stop seeing me or leave the church. They tell them I am filled with demons and are led by a bad critic spirit. He doesn't know English very well. He says, would you please pray for us? We need someone to have fellowship with. We need strength to keep the faith intact to the Lord's day. Thanks. To, uh, thanks. Nice to see that not everyone has gone mad. Love from Martin in Denmark. So, I, I, I was very touched by this. And I made sure that we, we did send him a copy of the book. But I, I, I want to pray for Martin and, and maybe all the other people around the world that, that know the Lord and they don't know where to find fellowship. So let's pray for that too. Heavenly Father, we pray for, for Martin in Denmark and his wonderful family. May you feed him with the pure milk of the Word and help him find some who are part of the remnant that would be willing to gather with him and his family to pray together and to uh, learn. And may we reach out with people and touch others around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So pray for the Lord's flock.
wherever they may be, because they're having the same problems as we're having here. They probably have even less options than we do. Okay, our passage here, we still got four prime chairs right here. They're padded and everything. Right here. I, I think they're, they're saved for you, uh, Anders. Brian? <laughs> there you go. You can sit, sit by us. Thank you. <laughs> now, now you're probably going to have to read a Bible verse. <laughs> you're in trouble, Joan. <laughs> this is Joan and Brian Anderson, good friends. Okay, 2 Corinthians one twenty four. Not, well, let me set the stage. Some of you are new to the Sunday school class. Paul has, has a very tenuous relationship with this Corinthian church. And several times I've read material sort of reconstructing the history of what's happened in the Corinthian church. But basically there was some person or persons who had sort of poisoned the well in Corinth for Paul, questioned his apostleship, and had false teachings and many things that were damaging to the church. Paul had previously, he had written 1 Corinthians, and then there was another letter called the Severe Letter that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians, but it's not in our Bible and it's not extant. Nobody knows exactly what was in that letter, but it was a sorrowful letter that he sent because of the broken relationship he has with the church. And what he's doing now in these passages that we'll study today is telling them why he didn't come for another trip when he told them he planned to, but he did not go. And so he's going to give the reasons why he did not go. They were using the fact that he didn't go as more ammunition against him, or at least some of his critics. They were saying, Paul vacillates, Paul can't make up his mind, he must not be from God. And Paul said, at least my gospel doesn't change. <laughs> my travel plans may change, but my gospel doesn't. And our message to you was yes and amen. In other words, it was affirmative. It declares the promises of God, and it doesn't change. So, saying that, excuse me, we're on 2 Corinthians 1.24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but our workers with you for joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So he gives them some encouragement. Now, the NIV translates this, it is by faith you stand firm. I think that's what it says. Somebody have the NIV? What, what does it say? Could you read the last phrase? Yeah. It is by faith you stand. That's the NIV. So uh, they have faith. They have the gospel. And Paul wants to nurture them and feed them in their faith but not lord it over their faith. So Paul is concerned that they would not be led astray by the false apostles. And so he ends up in kind of a very difficult situation. He either comes in forcefully and deals with it, in which case they may take it as him lordering over their faith, which he doesn't want to do. He wants them to, on their own accord, get things right with God and listen to the truth. But on the other hand, when he comes in Carefully and sympathetically, the false apostles come in and they lord it over the faith. They, they, get, they have their way with the flock. So it takes, um, it's kind of an interesting pastoral perspective we get as you read 2 Corinthians, whereas Paul, at one and the same time, wants to be strong and firm and uncompromising, but also tender and loving and caring. 
And, and, and by doing this, we see kind of a role model for, for us, I believe, that we should be the same way. Now, <clears throat> I have some cross-references. Why don't we just start here, being how you got the mic, Robert. Ezekiel 34.4 for Robert. Patrick, Matthew 23.8-10. through 10. Casey, Romans 5.2. And Denise, 2 Timothy 2.24-26. 2, and Mike, 1 Peter 5.3. And while they're looking those up, I have a couple of quotes here. Okay, Ezekiel 34 and verse 4. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. Okay, now this was about the false shepherds in Israel. In other words, they were supposed to care for the Lord's flock, but it says with force and severity. Uh, they What did it say? Force and, they did what? Force and with severity you have dominated them. You've dominated them. Now, it's inappropriate for Christian leaders to dominate the flock with their opinions and personalities or whatever it is that they want to do, because we're here to nurture the flock, not to dominate the flock. We're here to care for the flock, to protect the flock, to guard the flock from the wolves, and give people the opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And so Paul is setting a good example here when he talks about not lording over the faith. It was warned, there was a warning about that also in um, Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Now the problem would be that we got to guard our motives. Uh, it's possible for people that are in, uh, ministers or elders or, or whatever titles people get to start seeing the ministry as a way to further their own ends or to get accolades from man or to promote their agenda and therefore dominate the flock. And that's not appropriate. And Paul says an example in his own ministry that... Um, Jesus is the Lord, and their, their existence as Christians by faith in Christ, and it's not determined by man and his agenda. Okay? So that's, that's an important truth. So the next passage was Matthew 28, 8 through 10. No, 23, 8 through 10. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Okay, so in Matthew 23, he's warning his, them about being title conscious. They're trying to, uh, you know, parade in front of people and say, here's my title now. I want, I want all this honor given to me based on some title or position in the church. We should always be very mindful of the priesthood of every believer and the unity of the body of Christ and that Anyone that God has saved through the blood of Jesus has equal status with anyone else. Okay? I don't care. You can get all, you can be a bishop or a cardinal or a monsignor or, or whatever titles that somebody might dream up for a religious person, but it really is a wrong thing to become title conscious and look for uh, gaining something from other people in their faith 
in an inappropriate way. I have a quote here from uh, David Garland's commentary on 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> the statement that he wants to spare them touches upon two issues in this letter, his love for them and his authority. Some in Corinth have protested that Paul did not love, love them. From his perspective, however, it was an act of love to refrain from coming to Corinth to dish out punishment. Also, stating in this way that he wanted to spare them assumes that he has authority over the community, because Paul was really an apostle, right? So if he could spare them, he also has the authority to punish, but he is sensitive to how they perceive him exercising this authority. He has intimated that he had, had he come, he would have been forced to exercise his authority and punish the guilty parties. He backtracks, however, to make it clear that he has no desire to dominate them, to tell them what to think or do, or to control their faith. Apostles, and certainly pastors, are not lords over their churches. Only Jesus is lord over their faith. All right, so we need to keep that in mind. There's one lord, one shepherd, that's Jesus Christ. Yes? Backtracking to the last verse, but I, it's confusing to me why if he would come and discipline them, you, you think it would be for their good. Why would it be loving then to not do that if the discipline, although painful, would be for their good? That's a very good question, and it's one that's kind of addressed right here in Second Corinthians. Yeah, the yeah, well, you know what? I didn't think we need amplification down here. I'll have it for next week. Um, sorry about that. Uh, the question was, uh, why wouldn't it have been for their good for Paul to come and discipline them? Because they needed that, right? Is that, that's the essence of it? Well, his, he, what he did instead was write this sorrowful letter that we don't have. And then Titus, I believe, came back with a report. And the letter had seemingly, seemingly soothed things a little bit. So they had a better relationship with them. And it may have worked out better than just being in person would have at the time. Because the whole, have you ever been in a situation where you know that if you go into it and say something, it's going to blow up for good? Well, did anybody ever raise teenagers? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that's, sometimes you, when, when you're dealing with some things like that, you have to plot your strategy. You know, when am I severe and when am I tender? And it takes wisdom because sometimes we don't know. Yes. I think that part of what Paul is saying is that you can have two options when somebody's in error. You can appeal to them, bring an argument of what's true, and appeal to them on the basis of what God's done to accept this and uh, this appeal. Or at some point in time, then you say, no, I can't stand this anymore. This is not right. The abuse that's happening is, is too, too great. Yeah. So we're not going to appeal. We're going to deal with it head on. It was that kind of a thing that was going on. Right, and he had to decide which was the best thing. And it takes a certain amount of wisdom to be a, a pastor and to work in a church. And sometimes, just like it is in families or businesses or anywhere else, sometimes you get into a situation where you don't see any good answer. And that's what Paul had here. He really, he, he, it just was going to be a, something painful no matter what he did. So he took the course that he thought would cause the least pain, but still deal with him. Because he had to deal with him for the sake of the gospel itself. Now, uh, a couple more verses, then i got some more comments here. Casey had Romans 5 and verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and 
we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, it talks about standing firm, which is also in our verse here. So you have access to the grace in which we stand. Then 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Well, yeah, very, very important. Now, if you didn't hear that, it, it, I'm sorry, I didn't know we, I needed amplification. I'll, I'll solve the problem. Um, it's said to be gen, gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, Timothy had a very difficult job. As I've studied uh, through Timothy, uh, we did that at the couple's Bible study a couple years ago. And according to Gordon Fee... The problem in Ephesus where Timothy was was that the elders had gone astray. And this was exactly what had been predicted by Paul in Acts chapter 20. He said, I know, he gathered the elders and he said to them, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and from your own midst will come um, teachers who draw people after themselves. In other words, Instead of drawing them to the gospel, they're drawing them after themselves. So Timothy, which happens quite a bit later from Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, shows us that Paul's prophecy came exactly true. And from their own midst, that means these elders, came people with bad teaching that were drawing people after themselves. One of the big problems with false teaching is it can't do anything but draw people after somebody's self. Because that self that's giving the bad teaching is the source of it. All right? And see, anything, that, heresy, the word for heresy is related in the Greek to the word for choice. So uh, sometimes it talks about a heretic or a factitious person. Now, what that meant is that somebody comes up with a teaching that came from himself that's not a valid implication or application of the Scripture from our perspective or in his case when the scripture is still being written from the apostolic teaching of Paul and Peter and John and the other apostles. So since it cannot be derived from the authoritative teaching in any way, then whoever came up with it, it came from them. And so if they make disciples, they are by definition making disciples after themselves. Because that's the only place you can get it. Okay? That's on a kind of a big scale, that's how exactly the Jehovah Witnesses operate. I had one call me the other day and was harassing me on the phone about my belief in the deity of Christ. And I, I said to him, are, don't you believe that the Watchtower Society are the only infallible interpreters of Scripture? He goes, yes, I believe that. And I said, well, the Watch, Watchtower Society claimed that Armageddon was going to come in 1915. So they're, they're pretty fallible. Well, his de- his defense was, well, Jonah gave a false prophecy, so uh, so we can too. <laughs> you want to hand it over now, then for a second, then you get it back. <laughs> Just in Jeremiah 23, they have the same. There's a kind of consummate passage on false prophets. It says, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Do not listen to the words of prophets who are prophesying to you." They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you'll have peace. 
So the whole concept is that they came from their imagination. their imagination. Right. And so what happened in Ephesus was some of the elders of the church in Ephesus began to do that very thing, bring teaching from their own imagination, drawing disciples after themselves. And, and uh, Paul called it having been taken captive by Satan. And so when he's teaching Timothy how to correct these uh, leaders run amok and gone astray, he gave the passage that Denise read. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all, patient when wrong, in meekness, correcting those who are in opposition. So in other words, rather than getting into a shouting match or trying to assert just your own personality over somebody else, with gentleness, what we have that has the power and authority is the truth itself that cannot change. And it's not the force of our personality. It's not who has more followers or who has more clout, who's a better arguer or debater. It's the actual truth itself that has the power. And so we can share the truth in love and gently, and it still has all the power. And it isn't because you got a big sound system and turned it up. Now I got, you know, I remember going to a meeting in the 70s. This guy had his sound system and he'd get into the mic. Power! <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Oh, wow. That was powerful. I felt it. Well, you can feel the same power at a rock concert. Okay? So it isn't the volume. It isn't the, uh, you know, shouting or anger or anything like that. It's the actual truth of the Scripture that's powerful. And so you can gently and carefully stick with the truth and correct those who are in opposition. And that's what that passage says. And then it says, perhaps God will grant repentance. Because what what is happening with all heresy is that somebody's been taken captive by Satan. Satan has been able to get into somebody's mind and teach them lies, and they believe that those lies are from God. And when you believe lies are from God, you're in bondage. You're in captivity. Because it's like those lies become the Word of God to you, but they really aren't. And so, um, the way you get delivered from that is by God granting repentance and coming to the knowledge of the truth. And so, you bring the truth in front of people and pray that God will grant them repentance. Okay, Mike, um, 1 Peter 5 and verse 3. Thanks for being patient. Not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Okay, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being example to the flock. So, um, one thing that really turns people off is um, when uh, religious leaders obviously are trying to dominate others for reasons that aren't particularly appropriate, trying to dominate other people around them and demanding that everybody uh, kowtow to them. And another thing that turns people off rightfully is when leaders take for themselves a privileged status and won't do what they would require of everybody else. And that's what in Matthew 23, remember it says they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's back, but they won't lift them with a little finger. Okay? And so... 
There's something about human nature that, that leads to that, because it's happened all through church history. It keeps happening over and over again. So you get a chance to make everybody serve you, you do it. But it's, it's wrong, it's sinful. Yes. It gets back to that concept when I claim that my words are God's words, like the King James only, or those kinds of things. And I add to God's law and say, this is also binding because I said so. People who follow that because I said so are now in bondage. And the whole concept of the freedom of the gospel is to say, no, your words don't matter. Only Christ's words matter. And if I follow those yeah. words, that's enough. It's about binding and loosing. That's what, by the way, I, if you didn't know that, binding and loosing is, means to, to, to forbid or permit. So when, when the apostles gathered in Jerusalem in Acts chapter, as recounted in Acts 15, they did binding and loosing. They had to decide whether the Gentiles were bound by all the stipulations of the law of Moses, in which case they'd have to keep Sabbath, be circumcised, do everything it says in Leviticus and elsewhere, or whether they're loosed. If they're loosed, they're not bound by those rules under the Old Covenant. And in the church, the apostles in Acts 15 decided that they were loosed. They were released. They weren't bound. So when somebody declares something, that's that's what I do, by the way, when I get challenged by King James only people, I, I go I, I go right back at them now, because you can argue with them forever and it's no good because it's not based on an argument, it's based on prejudice in a conspiracy theory, and and there's no arguments that, that that they'll accept. And so what I do with King James only people is I say this: Are you are you telling me uh, by God's authority? that I'm in sin and I'm in rebelling against God unless I read the Bible translation you tell me. I throw it right back at him. You, you, I want you to tell me that. You, you're the prophet of God, then you tell me I'm sinning and going to hell because I read the New American Standard. Well, I don't want to say that. I say, okay, then I'm going to read my New American Standard. <laughs> I'm not bound. Okay, So you cannot bind people illegally by making yourself the spokesperson for God on a matter that God hasn't spoken. All right. So, but if God has spoken, we're bound not because of a pastor or a bishop or a prelate, but because God bound us by His Word, and that bondage is liberating. <laughs> That's Jesus saying, "Take my yoke upon upon me and learn of me. I'm gentle and, and so on." Okay, I was going to quote from Calvin's commentary, two Corinthians one twenty four. Very interesting, especially given all the stuff that was going on during the Reformation. Here's what Calvin said in his commentary: "Quote." When he says that he does not exercise dominion over their faith, he intimates that such a power is unjust and intolerable. Nay, more, it is tyranny in the church. For faith ought to be altogether exempt and to the utmost extent free from the yoke of men. We must, however, observe who it is that speaks. For if ever there was a single individual of mortals that had privilege to claim for himself such a dominion, Paul assuredly was, assuredly was worthy of such a privilege. Yet he acknowledges that it does not belong to him. Hence we infer that faith owes no subjection except to the word of God, and that it is not at all in subject to human control. This always remains a subtle point. Pastors have no particular dominion over men's consciences inasmuch as they are ministers, not lords. Unquote. Calvin from the 16th century. Very interesting. And Luther had, had many things similar to say. Uh, Pat, over here for Patrick. 
Was Calvin hypocritical in that teaching? Um, you mean in a sense that the, of Geneva? He, lord, he lorded it over Geneva pretty, yeah. pretty good. Yeah, I, I think that that was a very serious Achilles heel that um, wasn't fixed for centuries. And that is, they, they believed that the church had power over cities and states, Right? And that you could, and that they could uh, uh, exercise dominion in that in that realm, which is false. And as a result of that not being clear as it should have been during the Reformation, we had wars that went on and on and on for hundreds of years. Now, a Baptist pastor was the one who, uh, by the name of Bacchus, Isaac Bacchus, who finally, about the time of our Constitution wrote a compelling essay rejecting the idea that the church has authority over the state. Yes. I think that's really a good a good example for all the things that Calvin did believe that were good. That misbelief caused tremendous pain, tremendous carnage throughout the world. It's a really vivid example, though, even though you want to be biblical, we desire to be biblical, even us in this group desire to be biblical, if we wander in error, those errors are costly to ourselves and to those around us. It's That's not, true. There's no such thing as a free error. Uh, <laughs> what, I don't know if you couldn't hear Keith. He said there's no such thing as a free error. It always caused damage. Calvin had all this wonderful stuff, but because he was in error about the church's relationship to the state and the civil government, he caused damage. And whatever error we have always will cause damage, no matter... Uh, what it might be. Now, that, that may be a little bit scary because we're not infallible, right? But that's why we're always going back to the Scripture and opening it together and learning together. Is this what God has said? Is this the truth? Because if it is, it's saving, it's powerful, it's liberating. If it isn't, it's captivating and, and gives you bondage. And it does it every single time. And I know because I did it. I spent years serving bondage because I believed wrongly. I was just thinking about that. Why was I thinking about that? Oh, because somebody asked me about Watchman Knee. Because evidently Todd Friel was asking about it and somebody called Jan. And, and, and Jessica said, what do you know about Watchman Knee? Or did she call you? Okay, she, Jessica heard these radio shows. Everybody's asked about Watchman Knee. And, and, and I think Todd said, well, I think it's wrong, but I don't know why. Well, I know why. I lived it for five years. I can tell you what was wrong with it. I had I got a series of books by Watchman Nee, the only ones he actually wrote, called The Spiritual Man. And in those books, he claimed to have the secret that he gained by revelation about how to be free from demons, how to be truly sanctified, how to be a superior Christian. And his whole thing was based on anatomical um, sanctification. In other words... When we're, the Holy Spirit comes, our spirits become perfected and our soul is trapped between our body and our spirit. And so when the soul learns to listen to the spirit, it, it finds liberty. But when the soul follows the body, it goes into bondage. That's his definition of the flesh. And there's a whole really bad theology because God sanctifies the whole person. And, and, it, and it says in the Bible that we should keep ourselves from all filthiness of soul and spirit. But another thing in his book was that uh, 
demons can get a hold of us and take us over just based on a lack of force of our own will. So he said that certain people have passive wills, and because they don't have enough willpower, the demons come in and take over. And they can do it every time because they're operating on some law in the universe that he discovered by personal revelation. And I read those things, and I took them in in 1976, and I believed them, and I spent three or four years trying to minister to people based on the truths of Watchman Nee. But they weren't truths, they were lies. And it did not work. And I, I just thought about all of the pain, and it took me three years to figure out it wasn't right. And I believed it. So I know from personal experience, when you believe something that's not true and you sincerely commit yourself to it, that thing becomes your slave driver and taskmaster. And you know, ironically, the verses you read, Denise, were the ones the Lord used to deliver me out of that. And uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. So, uh, people are fooled by the pious. They're, way, they're fooled by the pious way more than the wicked. Yes, Mike. Well, I... You know, when something new comes up, it should always be suspect. I, you know, I've been in uh, church for 20 years. All of a sudden, some new spiritual mechanism comes through some book from some guy. I mean, you know, to, to immediately jump on that is almost foolish. I mean, you wouldn't do that in your financial life or in your... Uh, some people do. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Not the real rich people. The people that lose their money do. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, the the, uh, the Word of God's been given to us in the, in yeah. the Gospel, in, in the uh, Old and New Testaments. And for so for something new to come in, you know, uh, we wouldn't be getting something new... Uh, yeah. Coming out of a person in left field, you know? now, in the, during the 20th century. You know, if I would have just in 1976, I'd been trained in a good Bible college, so I knew better, and I didn't listen to my teachers, because so I wanted to follow my experience and let me right into air. I should have just stopped. Instead of spending three years trying to do this, I should have stopped and thought, what do I know about God, and what do I know about the gospel? Is God going to take a person whom He bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, His own beloved daughter or son? And allow the demons to take them over because the person's will wasn't strong enough. Just think that much. Say, why would God do that? Who's in charge of Satan anyhow? And so here we are trying to cast demons out of all these Christians. For years, for years, I wore myself out casting out demons. Or even just the fact that God's gospel and God's kingdom had been on hold for 2,000 years until Watchman Nee was born to give us the revelation how we could go forward. <laughs> yeah. It's kind yeah. of a little arrogant. Yeah, and, but that's the way it is with with uh, theophosics or any of these other things. There's all some new thing we figured out. Or I just read the secret message of Jesus, and Brian McLaren's claiming that nobody figured it out until now because they just didn't know how to read. So all of a sudden, now the kingdom of God is the social gospel. No, it's not. Says that, that's not even a new message. That's 150 years old. Okay, now, so we don't lord it over your face. So the, the true, uh, person, the true elder who would be faithful to the Lord according to the teachings in Acts 20, Titus 1, and 2 Timothy 3 would be the one, and according certainly to the teachings of Jesus, who's the servant will give, who will feed the fellow servants, who will feed my sheep, the true 
elder would be the one who always brings people to the liberating truth of the gospel and the freedom they have in Christ and the truth of God's word that wasn't made up in the 21st century. And it's the faith was for all delivered to the saints. That will never harm you or will always feed you. You'll always grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord through the truth of the word of God. Okay, we get to go to a new chapter. They actually finished the chapter. Now in the chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Now he's telling why he didn't come. I will not come to you in sorrow again, but if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice having confidence in you all that my joy should be the joy of you all. Now, a little difficult to understand, mainly because we have to fill in details that we don't have right here, that have to be pieced together from 1 Corinthians, later in 2 Corinthians, but he's writing to them and they know what he was talking about. We have to piece it together. Okay. So what happened was, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there was a bad response to it by some, some super apostles or false apostles. Paul wrote the sorrowful letter that uh, that he talks about here, that he wrote, that we don't have, and possibly made a visit that's not recorded anywhere in the Bible. And then, um, which he may have made uh, earlier on, and now he decided not to visit this third time, if that's how the reconstruction goes, and I think it does, He's saying the reason he didn't come again was because he just thought it would cause too much sorrow. He loves them, and he doesn't want to see the sorrow of further broken relationship. He's hoping that they'll repent and believe the truth and quit listening to the false teachers. So when he says in verse 1, I determined this for my own sake. In other words, Paul was saying, he's kind of burying his soul here. Paul was saying, I just didn't want the sorrow. I couldn't do it at this point. It was just going to be too much sorrow for me to go. So I didn't. It's interesting. Paul may have made an unannounced visit after writing 1 Corinthians. Uh, that's what some people speculate. Notice the repeated words. When, when you learn hermeneutics and context, you look for repeated words. Now, I'm using New American Standard. Uh, you may have the NIV or the uh, King James or the New King James or the Amplified or some of these other Bibles. But generally, if they're fairly literal, you'll get the, the idea of the repeated words. Look at verse tw- 1, sorrow. Verse 2, sorrow, sorrowful. Verse 3, sorrow. Verse 4, much affliction, anguish of heart, many tears, sorrowful. Verse 5, sorrow and sorrow. What do you think this section's about? Sorrow. <laughs> Sorrow. Paul is uh, got a lot of sorrow because these people that he loves have turned against him and worse yet, turning some even turned against the truth of the gospel. So they mistreated Paul and they listened to false apostles instead. Okay, uh, Keith, could you look up 1 Corinthians 4.21 and Leif? 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and Linda, 2 Corinthians 13, 10.
Oh, he's got it. Okay, 1, 1 Corinthians 4.21. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Okay, what do you want? The rod or gentleness? I'll take the gentleness. <laughs> well, the point was if they weren't going to repent, they're going to get the rod uh, of apostolic authority, figuratively speaking. Um, and then 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. Okay, so he's getting he, he, a little bit hard to follow. Paul's saying, I regret making you sorrowful, but then again, I don't regret it because if it leads you to repentance, having been sorrowful would be a good thing. That's my paraphrase version. <laughs> All right, so the sorrow that leads to repentance is a good thing. Um, and then 2 Corinthians 13.10. Okay. Robert, you want to check that mic? I wonder if my batteries went dead. Or is it off? Yeah, it went dead. Some little green lights. Oh, there it went. Okay. Sorry, technical problems in Sunday school. <laughs> All right, so he didn't come not in order to not bring more sorrow at that point. Verse 2. For if I cause you sorrow... Who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? Uh, again, to translate that or, or to paraphrase, because Paul loves them, the bro- broken relationship causes sorrow. He really cares about them. They're important to him. He cares about their spiritual well-being. And thus he says what he does. Now, I'm going to quote from Paul Barnett commentary on Second Corinthians. He says this, This he follows with a rhetorical question. Then, who is to make me glad except the one who has been grieved by me? Further discipline from him would bring grief to them, thus destroying their capacity to bring him the gladness appropriate to the relationship between a church and his apostle. The Corinthians have responded positively to the severe letter. uh, We find that in 2.6. So that the relationships between the church and the apostolic founder have been restored in this matter, at least to some degree. Once again, Paul can speak warmly in terms of the reciprocal relationships between him and them referred to earlier. As he, as he is a co-worker with his apostolic colleagues with them, the source of their comfort, 1.6, and the one who works for their joy, 1.24, so they in turn make him glad as he later would be comforted by Titus, who had been comforted by them, 7-7. Seven, seven. But if he had been grieved by them again, as he had done in recent visit, and as he would have done by returning directly to them, who would be there to comfort him? That's what it means. You know, have you ever uh, led someone to the Lord, maybe worked with someone and discipled them, and spent a lot of time investing in someone uh, in the Lord, and seen them go run amok? Has anybody ever had that experience? Um, I was reading John MacArthur, and he was talking about the parable of the 
what we call the sower and the seeds. And he says that the, the type of person that's caused him a lot of sorrow and he is, is the person who takes root and grows quickly and then dies out. And he said it's impossible at the time, I'm paraphrasing what I remember from MacArthur, it's impossible at the time to tell the difference between um, someone like that and a true convert. Because they, they get excited, they, they come to church, they want to hear, they want to learn. They, have, they show all the outward signs of being Christian, so you obviously you invest in them and, and, and disciple them and help them. And sometimes people like that, if we're not careful, end up in authority in the church. That's why it says, not a novice, lest being uh, lifted in pride to fall under the condemnation of Satan. Because it takes a while to know you're not dealing with one of these skyrocket Christians. Um, you know, that goes up in a blaze of glory and it fills back the earth right away. <laughs> and, and that's a reality according to this passage uh, in, in the Gospels about the sword of seeds. So MacArthur says sometimes people, that can cause so much sorrow because you see someone who is mired in sin and their life changes and they're excited about the Lord and then they go back into the mire. They go back into... Uh, uh, they're the pit, and it's, it's very heartbreaking, very sorrowful. And it's also sorrowful when people you love go into air, and you can't keep them out of it. And I've had that experience. People that I spent hours and hours and hours and hours working with and helping and pleading with uh, just go into air, and they, and they won't stay out of it. And in some cases, you can spend, I mean, literally countless hours writing long letters and pleading with the Scripture and, and showing the person and then, okay, okay, I think you're right. And then two months later, boom, right back in the air again. And that, that causes sorrow. So that's kind of what Paul's going through. And that's what he's explaining here. Because in 1 Corinthians, he says that he was like a father to them. And uh, seeing them go astray broke his heart as much as it would if you have a son or daughter that you love and that you nurtured and that you raised. And when they get older, they run astray. And it will totally break your heart. I was just going to say the same thing. Even as a family, if you have a son or daughter that wants something dumb, you convince them to say, "Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to do, you know, pursue that." And they go and do it anyway. That causes you sorrow. Yep. Even if it's nothing life-threatening or nothing eternal, there's some things that are wiser than other things, and you just assume it didn't happen, and just assume they didn't have to pay the cost of doing something stupid. Right. So you tell them the truth, and when they don't listen, they learn the hard way. And you suffer along with them. And you suffer, yeah. yeah. When, you, when you're in a family, whether it's a church family or a literal family, what we do influences everybody around us. And when we go astray, we hurt people. We hurt a lot of people. And it always does. Always, always. That, this should drive us into the Scriptures as students. Because everything we believe in air is going to hurt me, my family, or my church in some way. I'm not claiming that that means we have to be perfect in our knowledge because we know that we all stumble in many ways. But we should care enough to always want to learn and to grow and to know. We should care what the truth is. It should motivate us. The thing that scares me the most is when I see Christian leaders who don't care. Or they just say, well, nobody has all the truth as an excuse to not learn any of it. And it's everywhere. I just, oh, we just got a new cable company. 
Um, Comcast, we were Roadrunner, and now uh, Comcast bought Roadrunner in St. Louis Park. And so I got my own, her- I got three heresy channels I didn't have before. <laughs> and uh, I, the other day I woke up, I couldn't, every, every once in a while, it seemed like at five in the morning I started having a allergy reaction or asthma or, you know, sinuses and start coughing so I get up so I won't wake Diane up. And that happened the other day, so I went on and I turned on TBN. And I, I, I was, it was unbelievable. It was literally, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. There was this lady who claimed to be the prophet of God by the name of Paula White. And she was, you wouldn't believe it. She, there was a guy there and they were talking about how you can get it, you're going to get your release. You're going to get re, your release. And this is the 2007. Seven is the number of fullness. And because it's 2007, this is the year of release. This is when you're, when you're, diseases will go away. This is when your money will come in. This is when your answers are coming. And so they're going on and on and on. It's like, 2007 means something? Uh, and so then, toward the end, I found out where they were getting. Then they started really prophesying. They point their finger right in the camera. said, you, you, today, God is speaking to you to give $77. And God is speaking to you to give $777. And God is speaking to some of you to give $7,777 and get your blessings of sevens. And they were prophesying. I go, oh, oh, this is wicked. Now, what scripture can you read that's going to tell you that if you give $770 to a false prophet, God's going to solve your problems? And I thought, oh, this is terrible. And then finally it got over with. Now, I still wasn't sleepy. <laughs> I still got back to sleep. So finally that got over with, and out comes Jesse Duplantis. And I thought, well, maybe this will be better, because he got out in the pulpit and actually read a scripture. He read a scripture that I just recently preached on. And it was a passage from uh, 1 Thessalonians, I think 1.3, and he read the scripture. Uh, from a very literal translation. He was using the King James, that it was a good translation of that verse. And then he said, you received our message, not as the word of man, but as what it was, the word of God. I thought, okay, great. Now let's preach that. Well, then you know what he did? He, yeah, no, he said, that was proof that when you go to the doctor, the doctors, what he tells you is the word of man, but what you're going to believe is the word of God. And so he was teaching that health and prosperity gospel. And so don't listen to the doctor. Don't listen to the natural ideas out there. That's just the word of man. But you're going to listen to the word of God that says that you're healed. Now, but what is he not doing? He's not even trying to look at the context of what Paul preached in Thessalonica and what they received. You can go to Acts and see that he preached the gospel. He didn't preach, he didn't go to Thessalonica and say, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not listen to the doctor. <laughs> he told them about Jesus Christ. So anyhow, after that, I couldn't take it anymore. I turned my TV off. <laughs> it's, it's like, all these people are being captivated. Yes. And the cost, if you really believed what Duplantis was saying, there would be a cost in your life and cost in those around you. And if you're preaching that and proclaiming that as freedom, you're going to have a legacy of harmed people yeah. that you leave in your wake. Right. And the, the real tragedy was he has a verse that's gospel-centric and he shared no gospel. There was absolutely no gospel. 
And in both cases, uh, the Paula White and Jesse Duplantis that we listened to for, for an hour, they were saying the same thing. Here's how you solve your problems. Here's how you get more money. And here's how you get hell. Nobody told us how to escape hell and how to have our sins forgiven. So that was my hour of TV. So TVN, right up there. <laughs> Why does they put somebody on there to preach the real gospel? Yeah, I, I suppose nobody else said $777. <laughs> All right. Um, I hear rustlings. I guess we're... We'll, we'll start with um, verse 3. Read ahead and, and kind of do some of these things for yourself. Look at repeated terms. Here we're talking about sorrow. Paul's sorrow was that they were listening to, to, to air and not staying firm with the gospel he had preached to them. And it, I think all of us experience sorrow. How many here have friends and loved ones that you know that have been captivated by things that aren't the gospel, but they believe they're true? Just about everybody, right? And, and they so firmly believe it, and no amount of explaining the Scripture can get them out of it. That causes us sorrow. It caused Paul sorrow. He's, he's like anybody else. It's a, it's a heartbreaking situation. Okay, uh, I gotta ask, ask you to help. Along that wall there, let's fold up these chairs and make, and stack them up so we can kind of wander around out, out here. Exodus 3, burning bush. Just, just, just. Didn't coordinate her prophecy with Pat Robinson, who said 2007 is going to be full of suffering and terrorist attacks. So, <laughs> so who do we believe? Right, so we need to uh, get some coordination here. <laughs> well, you can always choose the positive one, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of an uncertain word. Oh, Oh, really? Which must be optional. Witness the, yeah, it's very similar. 